it's just heartbreaking that in a 21st century, a whole political unit will collapse and people have left and because they were traumatized, they were hungry, and they had no trust that Baku is going to reintegrate them and protect their rights. Hello and welcome to Iraq Davis Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evikiori and this week we're looking into what is happening in Nagorno-Karabakh, a region marked by decades of tension and conflict. Once more, the balance of power has shifted, leading thousands of refugees fleeing into Armenia as Azerbaijan claims control of an Armenian enclave within its territory, dramatically altering the conflict landscape in just two days of fighting. By September 26th, 19,000 forcibly displaced people had entered Armenia from Nagorno-Karabakh, with Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan warning of the threat of ethnic cleansing. The breakaway government of Nagorno-Karabakh has announced it will dissolve itself and that the unrecognized republic will cease to exist by 2024, formally ending more than 30 years of separatist rule. What we have witnessed on September 19 was a military, full-blown military attack by Azerbaijan on the unrecognized territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. And this was, the attack was, uh, is important to consider in light of the fact that it unfolded as a culmination of months long, over ninth month long siege and a blockade of uh, the Armenians in that entity. Anna Hanyan is Richard Finnegan, distinguished professor of political science and international relations at Stonehill College, a non-resident senior scholar at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. So the trigger, and I'm just using the language from The Economist magazine, considering that there were that there was a very dynamic peace process going on, agreements being pretty close. On September 19th, Azerbaijan described its action as local anti-terrorist operations, using precision weapons to target alleged Armenian military positions. The unrecognized pro-Armenian government in the enclave reported intensive bombardment and casualties by September 20th with at least 200 deaths, including civilians. Azerbaijan initially announced a halt to the operation after the separatist government agreed to lay down arms, but the situation escalated as Azerbaijani forces gained control. Azerbaijani President Aliyev promised rights for Armenians in Karabakh in a September 20th address, insisting that ethnic Armenians either accept Azerbaijani rule or leave. The hunger siege, the siege, triggered the mass exodus, an ethnic cleansing, a genocidal violence of Armenians that fled to Armenia. So within a matter of few days, literally, we have almost all 120,000 of people population has moved to Armenia. And it's just shocking that this has taken place in the 21st century. Um, as a peace scholar, peace and conflict scholar, this is a militarized end to a conflict. Nagorno-Karabakh declared independence during the collapse of the Soviet Union, leading to a war in the early 90s that resulted in significant casualties and displacement. A ceasefire in 1994 left Armenia in control of the territory and surrounding areas. In 2020, a second war erupted with Azerbaijan using drones to recapture much of the territory. 
Moscow brokered a ceasefire and deployed peacekeepers. Azerbaijan, fueled by its oil and gas exports, seeks to solidify its gains through talks for a more permanent peace deal and by blocking overland traffic between Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. Moscow has historically played a central role in the conflict, but its ability to project military power in the region has been hindered by the war in Ukraine, and its peacekeepers' influence has diminished following Azerbaijan's victory in September. But what lies beneath the surface of this dispute, and what events have shaped its course over time? At the heart of it, this is a pre-Soviet Uh, conflict. It's a very old conflict. It's one of national self-determination of the Armenian community in Nagorno-Karabakh. The fall of this entity resulted in the collapse of it as a political unit. And let me just um, summarizing a very complex conflict in one sense. I think there's broad consensus that one of the most important components of sustainable uh, conflict resolution peace building is for communities to be organized. Civic vibrancy is really important. And the peace processes in this case by Azerbaijan mostly have been captured. And the blockade and the militarized ending, which did not have to be that way, negotiations were ongoing and Azerbaijan would be getting everything it wanted. But I think the intent here was to eliminate um, all of the administrative unit a refused political accommodation with the entity, even though ethnic conflicts traditionally, historically, since 1970s, have been resolved and managed in the world by providing accommodation to minorities, whether it's political autonomy, whether it's federalism, but basically peacekeeping, close engagement and accommodation of minorities, and Baku just didn't want to have it. What has prevented Azerbaijan over decades from asserting its control over Nagorno-Karabakh is the fact that Armenia is in a military alliance with Russia as a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, whose other members are Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. But could the conflict be avoided, and if so, how? The emergent Armenia and Azerbaijan essentially were born into warfare. And these were very weak states at the time. And the conflict escalation was not managed. Conflict was kind of baked into the political identities of both countries. Um, So I guess um, on the one hand, you could say it should have been resolved then. But at the same time, um, I don't know whether there was capacity to resolve it then. But what has happened right now, you have, I think, Comparing this period, this process to the first Karabakh war is um, analytically incorrect simply because now you have a setting where uh, these states are over 30 years. They're very, they have grown to be very different states. One is nascent democracy, the other one is a personalized autocratic system. And these institutional differences matter as to what are their incentives from resolution or not. I think the peace processes, I have to say, for the past 30 years, while I value the important work done by the mediators, American, European, and Russian, but overall, the structure of the mediation has not changed much. And that perhaps because the local actors um, didn't want it to change much. Um, The peace process remained heavily centralized, very narrow and shallow. Um, uh, There was no organizational support. Civil society was cut out. 
And in this case, I have to say that as a, we cannot do both sideism, I think, um, especially after Armenia moved to democratize its political system, Azerbaijan has deepened its authoritarianism. And Azerbaijan, who has sabotaged peace processes for decades, I have interviewed numerous people for my last three books. And each one of them, Western diplomats, locals, would point fingers to Baku, often trying to go anonymous, saying that Baku is not budging on any peace process unless until Karabakh conflict is resolved, which now we see that not only the resolution through violence, militarized means, also is necessary for Baku for domestic regime survival purposes. So it's a combination of factors as to why this war was not prevented. But I do think... Uh, Baku played uh, particularly, um, it it's sabotaged the peace processes, captured it to legitimize um, uh, the atrocities that it committed um, in, in this entity. And as such, uh, I feel very, very defeated, very frustrated as a peace scholar. And I do think, especially the Western diplomacy was, um, this is going to sound too strong, but it was really amateurish. Uh, there is a lot of research as to what types of peace processes work. And I don't think there was consistent push on Baku to engage with the civil society leaders. The loss of Nagorno-Karabakh has raised doubts in Armenia about Russia's role as their primary protector in a region where geopolitical interests intersect. Turkey, on the other side, which is pursuing an assertive foreign policy, support Azerbaijan and it's a NATO member with ties to both Moscow and Washington. The United States seeks influence in the South Caucasus and the European Union is exploring energy partnerships with Azerbaijan while monitoring the Armenia-Azerbaijan border. So the current situation is characterized by complex power dynamics and shifting alliances. The geopolitical situation in the South Caucasus region is very complex, as you know well. It has been complex for centuries. Said in June the EU's high representative Joseph Borrell. And once again, a repeat contrary to other international actors, the European Union has not a hidden agenda or hidden interest. We are only motivated by ensuring lasting peace and stability in the region. But uh, Russia's action, and in particular Russia's attack against Ukraine, has had a lasting and a negative impact, both politically and economically, at the regional, global level, and in particular, in the South Caucasus. Russia's current focus in its war against Ukraine has having a significant impact on the geopolitical balance in the South Caucasus. You know that Armenia, as a member of the Russia-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, CSTO, requested military support from the CSTO last September, September 2022, when the latest military escalation with Azerbaijan took place. But Armenia received no support, neither from Russia nor from the CSTO. But we know also that there are Russian peacekeeper troops deployed in the Karabash, thanks to an agreement with the Azerbaijan government, And it is certainly an important aspect of the Russia role in this conflict. We do what we can do, providing humanitarian assistance 
and putting diplomatic and political efforts and pressure on the parts, and in particular in the case of Azerbaijan. Is Azerbaijan a reliable partner? Well, it depends for what. But in any case, it's one of the parts in the conflict. And when there is a conflict and there are two parts in the conflict, what do you have to do to talk with two of them and to make them to sit together and to try to look for a solution? And that's what the European Union is doing. In the meantime, the European political community is meeting in Granada this Thursday, October 5th, where the leaders of France, Germany, Armenia, Azerbaijan and the European Council's president, Charles Michel, were due to discuss the future of Nagorno-Karabakh. However, Azerbaijan's president, Ilham Aliyev, will not attend the EU-Bruker talks with Armenian Prime Minister Nicole Pashinyan. And EU member states have tasked the EU's diplomat service to prepare options for the bloc's potential future reaction if the attacks on Armenians continue. All this after the EU had agreed to a major energy deal with Azerbaijan to diversify away from Russian gas supplies. I don't think European Union played its cart Uh, cards correctly. On the one hand, recently especially, it became very active, which was really hugely important. And uh, European Union plays an important role with its civilian uh, monitors on Armenia-Azerbaijani border. But at the same time, European Union continued to legitimize Aliyev as a responsible partner, a responsible player who is going to diversify away uh, Europe's dependence on Russia, which even the data does not support that. So, European Union um, is, has been playing and continues to play with both hands and two hands doing very different things. But what could the EU and the West do to resolve the conflict? I'm not naive and I do understand that political possibilities uh, as to what is possible on the ground uh, in building peace processes in various uh, settings, the, there are limits as to what can be done. But there is a lot of low-hanging fruit The situation now, it's very late for for Europeans to do much in this conflict, specifically on Nagorno-Karabakh, because people have left. This was heartbreaking to waters. Nobody <laughs> left in Stepanakert. And it's just heartbreaking that in the 21st century, a whole political unit will collapse. Uh, people have left and because they were traumatized, uh, they're hungry after the earth, but they had no trust that Baku is going to reintegrate them and protect their rights. Um, so what the European Union can do, I don't know whether it would be possible to start talking about uh, returnees. Right now, with the way uh, Azerbaijan political system is, uh, is built, I do not see Aliyev or um, Azerbaijan allowing the return um, uh, of the Armenians to go back. I'm not even sure if they will want to go back. Um, but as to Armenia, this conflict is not over. What is happening right now, something very, very insidious, and actually Europe's interests are at heart right now, are at stake. As to what needs to be happening, I think Azerbaijan having digested without accountability as to what it did, what he did in Nagorno-Karabakh, will now continue um, stress pushing for Armenia south. The very the notion of uh, Azerbaijan wanting a narrow corridor uh, through Azerbaijan south to connect with Nakhichevan, this essentially is uh, is the strategy 
to build a conflict in Armenia's south. This is in Turkey's interest. This is in Russia's interest, which will have a new reason to stay in the regions, having completely weakened and it does not have a reason to stay in Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan does need a new conflict in order, the regime does need a new conflict to sustain itself domestically. So the least that the West can do is to beef up Armenia's security, stability of the borders here, considering that Armenia already offered broad regional unblocking, opening borders between Armenia and Turkey, Armenia and Azerbaijan. So uh, this would be beneficial for Armenia. This would definitely be beneficial for Azerbaijani people. Uh, but Armenia's offer of regional connectivity is not taken by Baku, which prefers narrow coercive corridor. And this is a fight for how our rules-based world order will look like. Will it be rules-based or it's going to be new imperial geopolitics, which is a very insidious form of geopolitics. Thank you very much. I am Evikiori, and this was Euractiv's Spin the Byline podcast. Visit Euractiv to stay on top of the latest news, sign up to our podcast newsletter, and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for tuning in, and until next week. <laughs>